Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Going back on the hot seat, they cannot catch a break. Uh, the latest is that the Seattle Times is reporting that the FAA was alerted to issues at Boeing, and Boeing should have been aware of uh, some of the uh, regulatory uh, problems here seven years ago. Joining us now to talk about it is Peter Robison, projects and investigations reporter, as well as George Ferguson of Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Peter, let's start with you. What do we know here? What should Boeing have been aware of uh, that led to the two fatal crashes that have left so many people wondering uh, whether their new jet is fit to fly. Well, the, the issue for Boeing and the, the reason the shares are, are down almost 3% today is that the the, the process uh, by which the 737 plane in, involved in the crashes was certified is uh, by the FAA is, is coming under really unusual scrutiny by both the Department of Transportation's Inspector General and, according to the Wall Street Journal, federal prosecutors, the, the, a grand jury in Washington, D.C., the, the journal is reporting, uh, issued a subpoena to at least one person involved in the plane's development, which is uh, not something that in recent memory has happened with an, a new aircraft program. Yeah. Uh, George, a question for you, if I may. The, um, the thing that strikes me uh, about Peter's story, what was unnamed sources in the uh, Seattle Times, that they underestimated the power of the flight control software that they reported to the FAA. And the newspaper also cited and said that the system could not reset itself each time a pilot or, or each time a pilot responds. In essence, it ratcheted the horizontal stabilizer into a dive position. How does something like that just go by the boards? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's going to be the big question here. Uh, it sounds like the first time they showed the FAA some of that data, that the deflection they had on that on the elevator, that trim piece was uh, much less than it ultimately was at um, at the final uh, approval or whatever you want to call it for the airplane. So um, it, it shouldn't go by the boards. The FAA should have been looking at, at that closer. Uh, I think that there's always a challenge when you're um, when you're the big uh, behemoth in the in the um, industry, right? We've seen it in finance, where the, the regulators try to regulate an industry that's probably um, a heck of a lot more conversant in what's going on uh, inside the uh, you know in the cutting edge of the space. And I think that's you have a bit of maybe the FAA deferring too much to Boeing here and thinking they're more on the cutting edge and not focusing on details like that. Details, yeah, details that led to uh, the death of hundreds of people. Uh, But Peter, to that point, to exactly what George Ferguson was just saying, how much is this a problem with the FAA and how much is this a problem with Boeing? I mean, who looks worse here? They they both are on the hot seat, as as you were saying. The the issue we we, um, reported on, 
um, concerns that people within the FAA had as, as long as seven years ago that uh, people uh, were, were upset enough about the, the sway that Boeing had over the approval process that they went to the Department of Transportation's Inspector General and said that uh, the, the, there needed to be changes in the process. Who are those and, people? Can you just give us uh, a well, sense? Well, the, the, in this r report, which was only released um, in a public records request, which didn't get any attention at the time, the, 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 some of these allegations were in anonymous faxes, which were sent from FAA managers um, to the OIG, and, and, and these uh, employees at the FAA felt that they weren't being heard and that they were trying to hold Boeing accountable, but their managers were not letting them. So, again, but back to the, the, you know, as you say, who's more culpable, the FAA or, or Boeing? They were trying to, um, and Peter, they were trying to speed up the certification process because they were behind. You know, you talk about bank regulation being one thing, you know, somebody embezzles money, a plane doesn't fall out of the sky. To, to try to rush a brand new design of an airplane seems perilous and, and irresponsible. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know if that yeah, question for his or oh. no. But you know, yes, it, it, that is a question, and I guess that uh, George, to to you, I'm curious. Do you have a sense of what the bigger liability is to Boeing at this point? From a from a financial standpoint, is it the potential for lawsuits, or is this a potential for uh, for airlines not ordering from them because of concerns about safety? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I I think you know the numbers that we're starting to run is that. Uh, the um, the cost of the airplane being out of service and getting it back in service will be a lot more. I mean, notwithstanding our sensitivity to the fact that people died in, on this uh, crash, these two crashes, you know, we kind of see Boeing's liability being about a hundred million dollars a month um, to buy you know, to support airlines that have airplanes grounded in maintaining their um, their route networks. We don't think there's enough airplanes actually parked. To, to get that done as we go through the year because there's the majority of the deliveries for Boeing 737 throughout this year would be would have been maxes. Look, I still think they'll get this airplane in service um, in a bunch of months. I think the, the, um, the burden will be higher to get it in service given the issues at the FAA and, and Boeing. But we see, again, $100 million a month, and we think every month adds another 12, so month two, 112, month three, 124 million. Um, and, and we haven't even started to, we can't really give a good estimate on what it's going to take to fix the airplane. We think if it takes work to the structure, that will be a lot more money than just a software fix. And I tend to think there'll be at least some work done to the structure um, to make it easier to shut off the autopilot and maybe to, to manage some of the center gravity issues. So, Peter, um, back to the public, if you will, um, even solving all these problems, um, it doesn't strike me that the consumer is going to feel terribly confident flying in this airplane immediately after the fix. H how does that impact Boeing? How does that impact the air traffic system, et cetera? Well, there, there's a lot of conversation that, that this is uh, going to impact Boeing's future sales of this plane. And, and already you see commentary on social media. You see that Lion Air, which uh, had the, the first 737 MAX 8 crash, is, has, has pulled a $22 billion order for Boeing planes. Uh, so over time, it, it could create pressure for Boeing to, to move on to the next generation of airplanes, which is going to be extremely expensive. 
And just to sort of finish up here, George, I'm curious from your perspective, uh, going forward, what does Boeing need to do to uh, give people confidence that it has reached a bottom in this whole issue? Yeah, I think I think any fix that comes out can't be a, a partial fix. It has to be clear that it is um, the right fix, maximizes safety. Uh, I think to to re- restore faith in Boeing, I, I think that's gonna that's gonna be huge. Thank you so much to both of you. Peter Robison, Projects and Investigations Reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Seattle. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Right now, it is that time to take a look at small and mid-cap shares. Dave Wilson has not blasted off into space just yet. Uh, he is joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Small caps and mid-caps doing pretty well. I am firmly on the ground. You are and firmly on the ground. small cap stocks are firmly higher. The Russell 2000 index up 1%, while the S&P 500 is only up four-tenths of a percent. So smaller companies leading the way here. And the Russell's biggest game belongs to Dermira, whose ticker is D-E-R-M. The drug developer has soared 97%. Second stage study data showed the company's proposed treatment for a skin condition was safe and effective. Now, Dermira's results also lifted shares of Aclaris Therapeutics, ticker A-C-R-S. They're up 22.5%. The company's developing a rival medicine for the condition known as atopic dermatitis. Now, Dasan's Jones Solutions, ticker DZSI, has risen 10.5%. The communications equipment maker narrowed its projected first quarter loss before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. The Russell steepest drop belongs to NII Holdings, ticker NIHD. The owner of a 70% stake in the wireless company Nextel Brazil is down 26%. NII is selling its holding to Mexico's American Mobile as part of a $905 million takeover and will dissolve once the deal is final. And Synaptics, ticker S-Y-N-A, has fallen 20%. The maker of touch-sensitive pads for mobile phones and computers was cut to neutral from by Mitsuho Financial, which cited market share losses. Dave Wilson, firmly on earth. Thank you so much for that, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks editor. Uh, right now, let us turn our focus to Lyft, seeking to raise almost uh, $2.1 billion in its initial public offering, which will be the largest startup listing since Snap's 2017 IPO. Joining us now to discuss, Atish Davda, Chief Executive Officer of Equity Zen, uh, based in New York. Atish, what do you think of this valuation, which would give the firm uh, a value of about $20 billion? Well, I'll tell you this, I don't know that Lyft wants to be compared to Snap too many times ahead of this uh, public listing that they're working on. Uh, Lyft's last valuation was at $15 billion, uh, and Equity Zen is a firm that allows buying and selling of private companies with issuer approval for many years ahead of the IPO. With that said, you know, looking at our data and not talking about any one company in particular, I think it's... Uh, you know, I think it's pretty promising for a company to come out there and put a valuation target meaningfully higher. It's above round um, because, you know, we've definitely seen some some unicorns go out to the public market with a with a value at or even sometimes below their last private valuation. So this definitely seems promising. 
I, a question for you is we we had a Bloomberg story that said in its filing, Lyft said that expenses are likely to increase and that it may not be able to achieve or maintain profitability in the future. How does that speak to a 10 to 12 multiple, basically? You know, that's uh, that's actually becoming more and more common in a lot of uh, companies going public, a lot of unicorns going public. Look, if you take a look at what Wall Street's looking for, uh, Wall Street's seeing a record low number of publicly listed companies into which it can, in, in, it can invest. Uh, you know, growth has been continuously rewarded over the last several years. And I think what Lyft is trying to say publicly, um, the same way that you know Uber apparently next month is going to go out with its own roadshow and is going to likely say the exact same thing, same thing we've seen many other companies out there that are public now say, is we are focused on growth. We believe we have positive unit economics. Uh, so if we ever turn off the marketing spigot, we automatically turn positive in terms of our net income. But one of the best things we see about Lyft, and it is promising, is that in addition to 100% growth, you know, they went from about a billion in revenue to over 2.1 in, in revenue last year, uh, we see shrinking net income loss margins. Um, that's not something you see in every company. It's obviously very important to show that there's a line of sight to profitability. Uh, and I think Lyft is trying to make sure that that is seen by, its, uh, you know, by the investors it's roadshowing to today. So uh, one thing, Atish, that you said was that probably Lyft doesn't want to be associated with the Snap IPO too much, given the disastrous performance of that IPO in subsequent uh, trading months. But I, I do have to wonder if there is a similarity here, because these are both startups that waited quite a long time before they IPO'd, being able to get financing through private markets and through public debt markets. I'm just wondering, does that set these companies up to have less upside? In other words, they've already uh, become mature enough that the growth perspective just isn't there. I think that's true for the typical public market only investor. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons our business exists is that, you know, equities and allows qualified accredited investors that want to invest ahead of the IPO to actually gain that access. Uh, so whether or not, you know, it's, uh, it's Lyft or Uber or the, you know, 20 other companies that we believe are going to go public later this year, I think one thing is absolutely true is that, you know, you hit the nail on the head. More and more, val more, and more value creation is happening in the private markets. Now, the story Lyft and Uber and many of these other firms are trying to say is that we're still in the kind of early stages of transportation as a service, as a sector. Um, and so, you know, you're going to see Lyft come out and say, you know, here's why we see, uh, you know, we only operate in North America at the moment. There's the rest of the world to conquer. Uber is going to come out hopefully a month from now and come out and say, look, we already have bits and pieces of the world. Now, in addition to ride sharing, we're offering Uber Eats and autonomous vehicles and, you know, the four or five other ways in which they can see, um, you know, a way to capture market. I think one comparison, though, that Lyft wants to avoid but can't get around yeah. is that of corporate governance. You see, you know, the same thing that Google and Facebook did that Snap uh, tried to do. Yeah. It did successfully, really didn't work out well for them, is so. the dual class listing of shares. And Lyft, Lyft is, uh, you know, is no different in that matter. Atish Davda, thank you so much for being with us. Atish Davda, chief executive of Equity Zen, talking about that Lyft IPO. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Over the weekend, President Trump tweeting about General Motors' plan to close an Ohio factory, or their closure of an Ohio factory, demanding that uh, the car maker reopen uh, the facility. Also saying that the United Auto Workers, run by Democrats, are to blame for this closure. Joining us now, Alan Baum, principal of Baum and Associates, which is in a Michigan-based research firm focused on automotive uh, for analysis of auto sales. Alan, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start with uh, what this closure actually came as a result of. How long was it in the works? Can you give us some background? Well, the, the obvious problem is that GM has far more assembly plants than it has sales that, that justify those plants. And obviously that's particularly true on the car side. Um, and so you saw closures uh, in Oshawa, uh, in, uh, in Lordstown, uh, and in Detroit Hamtramck. The unfortunate thing is GM's cars are a lot better than their sales. Um, now, of course, GM bears some responsibility for that. They've had some marketing issues uh, on those cars. Um, but the other thing is that cars and crossovers are, in fact, built on the same platform, and they're, they're made to be built together. Uh, Honda, Toyota, Nissan all understand that. Obviously, the rest of the industry does as well. They're just not as good as implementing it, and obviously GM is, is an example of that. Alan, how much of this is economics and how much of it is politics? I mean, the GM has said they've they placed more than a thousand employees from the uh, unallocated plants and that they have opportunities available for basically all of the impacted employees. And of course, those employees are going to have to give up a huge uh, portion of their personal lives if, uh, because the UAW contract allows for bumping um, to other plants. But of course, the, the plants are, are not necessarily within the Lordstown or even Cleveland area. And so uh, they're, they're talking about major moves. So major dislocation. Um, the, the, the issue is obviously much more economic. And the, the obvious problem is we're also into a period where the auto industry is starting to turn south. Not dramatically, but the auto industry was ahead of the overall economy in its recovery. It's also ahead of the overall economy in its downturn. How much is this, Alan, a case of uh, automation taking jobs and just not there being the need for as many plants or as many employees at each plant? And how much is this that it is just cheaper to produce cars and the parts elsewhere? Well, and that's not just a North American issue. Uh, obviously, North America is competing with uh, the rest of the world. 
when you look at the case of the Detroit Three, uh, the Detroit Three is is uh, generally maintaining, obviously declining in some situations, its its footprint here in the, in North America. Whereas the rest of the world's automakers see North America as a great opportunity. Our volume is not increasing so much, but our our profitability remains among the highest in the world. Um, with respect to automation, that's true across the board. Uh, it's it's true when you, particularly when you have declining profit margins and you need to reduce your cost. Uh, the Detroit Three uh, in cars obviously have had that. Again, the Detroit Three could be uh, as profitable uh, and sell more cars than they do as compared to their competitors. They simply haven't uh, put as much opportunity or, or focus on cars, and perhaps more importantly, uh, on crossovers where the market is growing. Sure, they're strong, but they're losing some of their, their share there as well. Is there an opportunity for the, uh, for the North American three, if you will, to get a potential bump if we impose tariffs on European cars? Will this sort of be a backdoor push for them, maybe? Well, that's, that's the idea. The, the, of course, the dirty little secret is all automakers use lots of parts and to a different levels of degree car imports from around the world and and of course i should say vehicle imports um so in theory uh the detroit 3 would be less disadvantaged than the other players but the point is what i just said less disadvantaged uh those those brute force tariffs uh, are likely to reduce the overall industry, and obviously, uh, to, to the extent that that a company is less in less than great shape, uh, relatively speaking, they'll be hurt even more. Alan Baum, thank you so much for being with us. Alan Baum, principal of Baum and Associates, joining us from Michigan. And Vince, I am struck by the idea that this is Ohio we're talking about, a swing state, and that President Trump is making this into something of a campaign issue as we sort of have a drumbeat toward the 2020 elections. Sort of interesting to note that. Yeah, it does have, it rings a lot of politics and a lot less economics to me, to be perfectly honest. General Motors shares, though, are down 1% today. Uh, interesting to see that to sort of what degree President Trump's involvement in this. Just there is a certain political risk uh, that is inherent to companies, regardless of the economic factors. Right now, let us talk about the wicked uh, experience of trying to bet on the Commerce Bank Deutsche Bank tie-up that has been in the works for so long. Joining us now is Elisa Martinuzzi. She's a columnist covering finance for Bloomberg Opinion. Joining us from London, we have seen the shares rally of both Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank. I guess the key question is, how much of a game changer is it that the German government has officially, or not officially, uh, but given a sign that they are okay with the job cuts that would make this tie-up worthwhile. 
Yes, on the one hand, as you say, the government has signalled that they would be uh, they wouldn't stand in the way of job cuts. On the other hand, you had Angela Merkel's uh, chief of staff today signalling that uh, you know they wouldn't be too keen on job cuts. And in the middle of this uh, is the role that will be played by the employee and labour representatives that, of course, sit on both of those banks' supervisory boards. So we are quite a long way. It feels like from from an agreement. Um, the formal discussions only started over the weekend, but critical to the steel working would be tens of thousands of job cuts in Germany, uh, something in the order of you know as many as thirty thousand. So getting the the backing for those is going to be absolutely crucial. Alisa, how much of this, uh, when you put it all together, um, you know, separately both banks would have had to have job cuts and and consolidation to make both institutions work anyway. How much of this makes it a little easier to swallow in job cuts when you say, well, there was a merger and that the job cuts are as a result of the consolidation and the merger as opposed to just weaning both banks? Absolutely. But I I think the trouble there is that... um these two banks, you know, overlap considerably in parts of commercial and consumer banking in Germany. And by putting them together, yes, you are lowering the cost, but you're not necessarily changing the competitive landscape in Germany because though they would become the dominant player, they are still competing with hundreds of uh, local savings banks, local cooperatives that compete on very different terms. They're not necessarily competing to make huge, you know, to make profit. So um, that dynamic will remain unchanged. And on top of that, you're not really grappling with the weaknesses that Deutsche Bank brings to the table, which is its investment bank, because Commerzbank doesn't have much of an investment bank. So putting those together isn't really going to change the difficulties that Deutsche Bank has on Wall Street. I'm watching the cocoa bonds. These are the tier one uh, capital debt instruments of Deutsche Bank that have been pretty volatile over the past few years. And I'm struck by how much they're gaining on this news. I'm just wondering across the board whether this is a bet that the German government will enable Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank together to have higher capital buffers and that these that these instruments will be treated nicely in any kind of merger. Yes, well, the the expectation is that this deal would come with some kind of capital requirement or capital need. And um, there's talk about how the bad will, the negative goodwill, that um, the you know the the target would would um, would bring up and, and how that could be used to strengthen capital, um, but I think you know more to your point about Germany's backing. I think even though on paper this deal doesn't look too great, the fact that Germany behind the scenes seems to be orchestrating it is um, increasing the odds of it actually happening. And does this this does it dramatically um, change the tier one capital holdings of both banks or are Deutsche and Commerz, um, for instance, large holders of sovereign debt as, as a lot of the Italian banks are? Does, does, it, does that cause them or will that force them to switch out of some of those assets into others to structure the capital? Well, as you come as you come together, there's obviously going to be a, a review of the assets in both books. And, you know, yes, Commerce Bank... Um, uh, own some sovereign Italian debt, uh, sovereign Italian debt that it hasn't um, marked to market. Um, though, you know, on the other hand, Deutsche Bank has a very large um, portion of, of level three assets, which you know may have to review. So, um, I think it, it's you know we don't really have the numbers yet, so it's a little bit unclear to see how they come out of this. But the expectation is that um, th- there would be some kind of capital requirement needed. What happens to the investment bank at Deutsche Bank? Well, this is what the talk still is about. And, you know, the Commerce Bank has shifted away from that space. So they're unlikely to want to inherit a large 
investment bank that's so inefficient. Um, and so it, it doesn't really alleviate the pressure on, on Deutsche Bank and, and a combined entity to try and make that business work. People have talked about retrenching from the U.S., certainly in terms of trying to compete head-on with Wall Street firms on U.S. turf is what they would have to look at and potentially scale back considerably their equities business, which is subscale. So but Deutsche Bank has been actually scaling back quite some time in the United States, at least from a competitive advantage. But as you said, putting the two banks together, while you, you really don't have a united European banking system, puts them, continues at a, at a state of disadvantage. Um, interesting how this is going to play out. Uh, most of the people that I've talked to don't feel terribly confident that this is really a solution for both of the banks. What's your take on that? Agreed. I think, you know, it leaves, you know, it leaves the combined business still very much uh, exposed to the interest rate cycle as well here. And yeah. of course, we're into negative, we have been in negative territory for some years. There's no real end in sight to that. And this deal doesn't alleviate um, that pressure. Yeah. And, you know, in the, in the German market, they're still very exposed to the competitive pressures. So it doesn't really solve much that they're trying to grapple with yeah. independently. Elisa Martinuzzi, thank you so much for being with us, columnist covering finance for Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.